to turn back in our Bibles tonight to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Um, while you're turning there, I know a number of you here uh, have take part in the staff banquet on February the 4th, and um, we need to know if you are coming because the food or a great part of the food, uh, maybe the most important part of the food, the meat <laughs> has to be ordered uh, by Thursday. So if you can tell John tonight after the service, if you are uh, planning to come, you can call the office tomorrow, but uh, we'd like to know tomorrow if possible. Uh, if you're planning to attend, so that uh, that order can be made by Thursday. 1 Samuel 15, and let's just read verse 3. Now go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not. But slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts tonight and uh, help us to see the message of this verse that you have for us, that we might be a blessing to you here in this world and a testimony for you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we looked at this third verse and its application to those who are lost and we saw that rather than this verse bringing into question the goodness of God, it actually does the opposite. Because when you study the history of Amalek, you find that he, like every other human being who has ever lived, was a recipient of the goodness of the God who is full of compassion and gracious. The God who is long-suffering and plenteous in mercy. The, the loving and the good God who is slow to anger and of great mercy. Who's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And there are three words in this verse before we leave uh, the message to the, to the lost that we ought to notice as we Think about the goodness and the love of God for sinners. And these three words bring to mind what, to me, is perhaps the most wonderful verse in all of the Word of God, a verse that gives me at least spiritual goosebumps every time I read it. And that's Romans 3 and verse 26. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness. And here's the part of that verse that is, that conveys love so amazing, love so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. That he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. God's pronouncement of judgment here 
His pronouncement of judgment on every human being is spare them not. Spare them not. That is the justice of God. It's the justice of God against sinners. It's the justice of God against those who hate him. And that's every one of us. That's the justice of God that his holiness demands. That he might be just. Spare them not. But then we read these wonderful words in Romans 8.32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. That's the other part of Romans 3.26, isn't it? That is how the Lord Jesus might be just and the justifier. Only God can be both. The how he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Spare them not that he might be just. He that spared not his own son that he might be the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Wonderful words of life. And they're brought to our minds by this third verse of 1 Samuel 15. And the words, spare them not. The good news of the gospel is here in this verse. But tonight, we've come back to these words to think about its application to those who are saved. And the application to those who are saved goes right along with our study of the second chapter of the book of Galatians and what it means to be crucified with Christ. What it means, as we saw in Romans chapter 6, to reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Last week in Genesis 22... In the life of Isaac, we looked at a real-life example of what it means to be crucified with Christ. This week, in this third verse, in the life of Saul, we want to see, again, a real-life example. We want to see a real-life example of what happens when a believer loses the conversion war and converts the Lord into such an one as ourselves. See what happens when in the life of a believer we're not crucified with Christ. When we don't put this old nature to death. As we begin, we may not be able to cover all that tonight, but we're going to try. As we begin, we want to understand who Amalek is. Turn back to Genesis chapter 36, if you will. Genesis chapter 36. I think we mentioned this chapter this morning. Genesis chapter 36. And let's read it verse 1. Now these are the generations of Esau who is Edom. Esau took his wives 
of the daughters of Canaan. Now look at verse 4. And Ada bare to Esau Eliphaz. Now look at verse 12. And Timnah was concubine to Eliphaz, Esau's son. And she bare to Eliphaz Amalek. This is where we meet Amalek for the first time. He's the grandson of Esau. In other words, he is the second generation of Esau's family. Two in the Bible is an important number. It's the number of contrast. It's the number of difference. On the second day of creation, that's the first two in the Bible, God divided the waters from the waters. God put a difference between the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And that difference took place on the second day of creation. In Matthew chapter 7, the Lord Jesus tells us about the difference between the two gates, the straight gate and the wide gate, and the difference between the two ways the broad way and the narrow way. And he tells us about the difference between the two ends, destruction and life. In the same chapter, he tells us about the difference between the two foundations, rock and sand, and the two houses that are built on those two foundations, and the difference between their... uh, uh, reactions to the storm the house on the rock fell not for it was founded upon a rock the house on the sand fell and great was the fall of it so these just illustrate how two in the bible is the number of contrasts the number of difference and that applies here as we think about esau and his son of this second generation, Amalek. And the difference is this. Esau is a picture of the old nature in those who are lost. Esau was a hunter. He was self-sufficient. He did not want, he did not feel the need to sit in the tent with Isaac, his father, and Abraham, his grandfather, He didn't see the need of that. Didn't see the need of hearing the word of God. All he needed was the field. The world, if you will. He had no need for God. Esau despised his birthright, the Bible tells us. It also tells us that Esau found no place of repentance. Though he sought it carefully with tears. Esau's tears, his sorrow was not godly sorrow that worketh repentance unto true salvation. Esau's tears were the sorrow of the world. Sorrow over the loss of blessing. Sorrow over the loss of position and things that he could have had. 
that sorrow, the sorrow of the world, worketh death. Esau is a picture of the old nature and those who are lost. In contrast, Amalek is a picture of the old nature in the people of God. We know that because, as we mentioned this morning, after his uh, after the mention of his birth here in Genesis 36, and the mention of his being one of the dukes, one of the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the next time that we find Amalek mentioned in the Bible is in Exodus chapter 17. And I'd like to ask you to turn there again this evening to Exodus uh, chapter 17. As we think about Amalek tonight as a picture of the old nature in the believer, we need to remember the Lord's description of what he did in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 3. The Lord tells us that Amalek, Amalek laid wait for Israel in the way in the way. Amalek was there waiting to come out. Waiting to come out. He was waiting to come out and fight with the people of God. And we learned something here about what brought him out into the open. What brought him out to confront the people of God. Amalek came out from his lying in wait. He came when the people of God did chide with Moses. We read that in verse 2 of this 17th chapter. He came when the people of God complained and murmured and quarreled against the man of God, Moses, who had the rule over them. Amalek came in the midst of this strife and contention. That's what the word Meribah means in verse 7. Amalek came when the people of God doubted and questioned and tempted. That's what the word uh, Masa means in verse 7. And they didn't just tempt Moses, they tempted the Lord. And the doubting and the questioning and the tempting is summarized in this question at the end of verse 7. Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? This is when Amalek came out. Look at verse 8. Then, then, after all of these manifestations of the flesh of the people of God, then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Now I'd like for you to keep your place here and look over at Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25. We're not through in um, Exodus chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 25. And look at verse 17. Remember, 
God is telling his people. Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when ye were come forth out of Egypt. There are a couple of things here that we want to see. The first one is a, um, I guess we would call it a confirmation of who it is that Amalek pictures. Notice that he's attacking those who have come forth out of Egypt. That's the children of Israel. And how did they come forth out of Egypt? How did they come out of the bondage and slavery of Egypt? They came out by the power of the blood of the Lamb. Who is it that Amalek, who is it that our own nature attacks today? Who is it that he lays in wait for, that he's ready to attack? It's those who are saved. Those who have come out of the bondage and slavery of sin by the power of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Passover, who is sacrificed for us. So this phrase, come forth out of Egypt, is a reference to those who were saved. And this is who Amalek, our own nature, attacks. And he particularly lays in wait to attack believers who are walking with the Lord. There's two words here uh, that we find, and they're the same two words that we find in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 2. And those two words are the way, the way. In, 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 in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 3, we read that Israel, that Amalek came when they were walking in the way. Israel, the people of God, are in the way that the Lord was leading them. This is who Amalek. This is who this old nature in the lives of the people of God is waiting for. For those who are in the way that the Lord wants them to go. And there's another point about being in the way that the Lord wants us to go. It's not an easy way. Have we discovered that yet? The Lord Jesus said in John 16 and verse 33... These things have I spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. He told that to his disciples. He told it to us, but he was directly speaking to his disciples. Those who were his followers, those who were in the way. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus. That what it, that's what it means to be in the way. To live godly in Christ Jesus. And Paul told Timothy that when you do that, you're going to suffer persecution. You're going to suffer tribulation. You're going to suffer trouble. There are going to be rephidims in the way. There are going to be rephidims in the way that the Lord wants us to go. Places that are hard and difficult. Places that are dry because there's no water. 
And the Lord's going to bring us to those kind of places to teach us what he was trying to teach the people of Israel, that they could rest and depend and lean upon him. The temptation will be for us to do exactly what the people of God did. Complain and murmur and doubt and ask, is the Lord among us or not? That question brought to mind another question, a very similar question that a child of God asked. And that child of God was John the Baptist. John the Baptist got in a place like Rephidim. He stood for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He told Herod the king, it is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. And it upset Herodias, Herod's brother Philip's wife, sitting right there. John says, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so she told Herod to put John in prison. And he did. That prison was a dry place. That prison was a rephidim, if you will, in John's life. And there in that rephidim, John began to doubt. Just like the people of God did in Exodus chapter 17. But you know the contrast? You know the difference? We're talking about uh, differences tonight. You know the difference between the people of God in Exodus chapter 17, and John in the prison. It's how they handled their doubt. John sent. John gave his doubt to Jesus. He gave his doubt to Jesus. Matthew and Luke tell us what he did. Now when Jesus had heard when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Very similar question, isn't it? People of Israel there in Exodus chapter 17, is the Lord among us or not? John there in the prison, same question. Art thou he that should come, or look we... For another. John sent his doubt. He sent his question to Jesus. And you can read in Matthew chapter, I believe it's 11, and Luke chapter 7, you can read the tender words that the Lord Jesus sent back to his doubting child. How are we going to react when we come to the rephidims of life? How are we going to react when we come to the rephidims that are in the way? Are we going to react like the people of Israel and murmur and complain and strive and contend and question and tempt the Lord? Or are we going to send our doubt to Jesus? And think about the contrast 
Think about the difference in the results of the reactions. The result of the reaction of the people of Israel in Rephidim brought on Amalek. The result of the reaction of John there in that Rephidim, there in that prison, brought back Jesus, if you will. It brought back the words of comfort and strength from the Lord himself. Something else that we see here in Deuteronomy 25. Look at verse 18. Well, let's read again at verse 17. Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when ye were come forth out of Egypt. How he met thee by the way. <laughs> the way is where he loves to haunt. Kent said in a message one time that the devil is not in the habit of waking up sleeping Christians. And this old nature is not in the habit of stirring up and causing problems to Christians who are out of the way. How he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary. And he feared not God. Notice here who Amalek smote. He smote the hindmost of the children of Israel. He attacked and he smote and was victorious, according to the language here, over all that were feeble behind thee when thou wast faint and weary. Now, here's the question. How did these people of God get in that shape? How did they get behind in the Christian life? How did they get feeble? How did they get faint and weary? They got in that condition when they complained and murmured and quarreled. And strove and contended and doubted when they tempted the Lord. Then came Amalek and fought and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. And because Amalek fears not God, he is not going away. He's not going away. If you still have your place back in Exodus chapter 17, keep your place here. And um, I better do that too. And uh, look back at Exodus chapter 17 and look at verse 14. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. Now I want you to listen to these next words. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Beside this verse, 
I wrote a verse that we talked about last week. I wrote the reference. didn't have enough room to write the whole verse. But that verse is Romans 6 and verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. That's our standing in Christ. And we see our standing in Christ in this verse. Because our old man, our Amalek, is crucified with him. God has utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. That's how God sees us in Christ. He sees these words as an accomplished fact. But then look at verse 16. Because here we see our state here in the world. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. If he's utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, why is there going to be war? Because you and I are still living in the flesh in this world. That's why. This is our state here in the world in verse 16. Our state in the world is war. Is war. Galatians 6, or rather 5, in verse 17. For the flesh, Amalek, our old man. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit. The spirit of Jesus Christ that is in us. And the spirit... The spirit of Jesus Christ against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other. This is the war. This is the war that we're in. And we're in it every moment of every day. So what are we going to do? Well, look back at Deuteronomy chapter 25 again. And let's read verse 19. Therefore it shall be, when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about, in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Thou shalt not forget it. Isn't that what the Lord told Saul to do? In 1 Samuel chapter 15. Let's look at it. This is what he told him to do. In 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 3. Now go and smite Amalek. And utterly destroy all that they have. And spare them not. But slay both man and woman. Infant and suckling. Ox and sheep. Camel and ass. There is nothing of the flesh that's worth saving. Nothing of the flesh. For in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. This is the same command that the Lord gives us in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. That verse begins with a very powerful word. And that word is mortify. Mortify. That word means put to death. Put to death. 
The message of that word is verse 3 here in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Go, destroy all that they have and spare them not. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. This is our state. This is where we live in the world. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. How are we going to do that? How are we going to blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven? Remember, God, back in Exodus chapter 17, said he's going to do that. And Paul tells us he's done that in Romans chapter 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. It's an accomplished fact with the Lord. So how are we going to live in the light of what God has already accomplished? Well, Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Our old man is crucified with him. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And in the light of that, we're to reckon ourselves to be dead, indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In the light of that, we're not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. We aren't to yield our members that are here upon the earth as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but we're to yield ourselves unto God as those who are alive from the dead and our members as instruments of righteousness unto God. This is the message of 1 Samuel 15 and verse 3. And it is as uncomfortable To those who are saved, this verse is. It is as uncomfortable to those who are saved as it is to those who are lost. And you know the proof of that? The proof of that is Saul. Saul got involved in the war of conversion. And so he took this third verse and he converted it to what he thought it ought to be. And what he thought it ought to be is, you know, I'm going to save Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Surely he's a good fellow. You know who the king of the Amalekites is? It's it's ourselves. And then I'm going to save the best of the sheep. And I'm going to save the, the, the best of the, uh, the, the goats, the fatlings, the oxen, the lambs, all that was good. I'm going to save that. And you know what? I'm going to offer it to the Lord. <laughs> He's not interested in that. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want the works of the flesh of saved people any more than he wants the works of the flesh of lost people. This is the message of 1 Samuel 15 and verse 3. And it's a message that those of us who are saved 
need to believe. It's a message that we need to live in the light of. Not just every day, but every moment. Every moment of every day. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the power of this verse. 1 Samuel 15 and verse 3. And we pray tonight that we would see ourselves in this verse. Our need to put Amalek to death totally and completely. To believe what you say is true. That there's nothing in our flesh that's good. We pray that we would not try to convert this verse as Saul did. And oh, the ruin it brought to his life. Oh, the ruin it'll bring to our lives. We pray that you would help us to think about these things tonight and live these things. And we ask it in Jesus' name.